Heavenly Father, we are coming, coming to you right now in prayer, in the name of Jesus Christ. And through that name, through Jesus who lived, who died for our sins, made atonement for them, rose in victory, defeating death and hell, and has justified and saved and forgiven all of his followers, those who have placed their faith in him. It's by that name and by the life that backs up that name, the life of Jesus Christ, that we come boldly right to your throne. The gates are wide open. You have invited and even initiated us to come. And so here we are presenting ourselves before you this morning coming for several reasons, coming to give you our praise, to lift up and exalt the truth about who you are and tell you that we love you for it. Let's love the picture of the wave of worship that happens every week as the earth spins and the time zones go from east to west there across the United States that Alaska really gets to be the crescendo of that wave of worship uh, as your church, the body of Christ, gathers uh, here. So Lord, we add our praise this morning and we are coming coming to bring our request to you, coming to pray, to pray corporately. We, we do that right now. Lord, you know what the needs of each individual heart are. I'm asking that you would meet each person right where they're at and out of your unending, inexhaustible riches, all possible in Christ Jesus, that you would meet the needs and glorify yourself. I'm praying, Lord, also at just the beginning of a new year here, thinking about us as a church at large. I'm asking God that 2012, as we stand here on January 1st, that when we stand here on December 31st of this year, that we would be able to marvel at what you have done to glorify yourself through the ministry of this church. What you have done to build your kingdom, to release people from bondage, to free people from sin slavery and make them obedient to righteousness. We'd be able to rejoice over marriage is saved and young people brought back uh, to their parents and just all of the composite things that your power does in transforming lives. Just asking you to do that in an incredible way this year. Start it right here today. Father, finally, uh, corporately here, I'm asking that your truth right now would be unleashed in power. I'm asking that you'd keep me out of the way, that, God, that your work, your grace, and that your Son, Jesus Christ, would be exalted and that there would be freedom in this place for the Holy Spirit to work in a powerful way in each heart. Pray that every single individual here would come right into contact, God, with you in a very manifest way, realized way, uh, be underst 
to understand through your spirit what it is that you're asking him to do. What you're calling him to. Trust you to do that. In Christ's name, I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, welcome. <clears throat> welcome to the new year. Looking forward to what God is going to do in and through us this year. Would you please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. We're going to look at Romans chapter 6 verse 17 this morning. And as we do that, what we are going to see from this one verse is we're going to see Paul paint a picture, an incredible picture of the Christian life. Through his pen, Paul is going to show us what will, not what should or can, but what will be true in the life of those who are truly saved. He has been working around that subject throughout this entire chapter. And the chief gem of truth is right here in verse 17. The chief gem of this chapter very well could be the clearest, most concise description in all of Scripture of what a believer's life will be like. So we're going we're gonna to look closely at this picture. And because the truth here is, really is, runs so deep and is such an incredible, beautiful, and influential truth. I want to take two approaches to looking at this verse. I, I want to take, first of all, a microscopic approach. I want us to look down and close at every little piece of this verse so that we really see it and each part of it for what it is saying individually and then just close by stepping back and putting the entire picture together. So in a sense, we'll be examining each facet of this gem and then we'll just step back and put it under the light and let that light refract through its facets in its brilliance and glory. Verse 17, Romans chapter 6. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. One of the Obvious truths that we're going to see here. A truth that Paul has been massaging all the way through Romans chapter 6. Really, the big truth overall of Romans chapter 6 is this, that salvation has lashed to it every single time. Sanctification. Sanctification may be a, a brief just definition for those of you that are not familiar with that, the theological large term. Sanctification simply means the process of spiritual growth that takes place in a believer's life that makes them more and more like Jesus Christ that the big idea of Romans 6 is that if you are saved, 
the work of sanctification is taking place. And we're going to see that piece by piece here. So first of all, let's take this close look at the various statements or phrases, beginning with the opening statement here in Romans chapter 6, verse 17. Paul comes out of the chute and he says, but thanks be to God. Paul, just conceptualize here for a minute, Paul says, I think, Implicit, before I look at the explicit statement, but implicit, Paul is saying, as you look at the rest of the verse, you remember who you were? Do you remember from the depth from which you were pulled, the pit from which you were rescued, that pit of slavery to sin? Hopelessly bound over, born into that slavery with a sinful nature under the curse and condemnation of that sinful nature given to you by Adam. You were a slave with a slave master called sin so that you obeyed the slave master and you sinned. That's who you were. But thanks be to God. That's no longer who you are. You are someone very different now, he is telling the Romans here. That God, thanks be to God that he took you in that state, which the Bible defines as spiritual death. Thanks be to God that he took you while you were dead and he regenerated you, he woke you up. This is what is implicit here. He woke you up so that you could see and hear His truth, the truth about Jesus Christ. Because you could not have seen and heard it unless He had woken you up, brought you to life, regenerated you. And then you heard that truth and God put it into your life so that it birthed faith. And you put your faith in Jesus. And when you put your faith in Jesus, He justified you. He saved you. Thanks be to God that He brought you to a point of salvation. That's certainly implied, but that is not explicit. That's not actually what he says. It's really almost unusual on the surface. He says, thanks be to God that you're living in obedience to the truth. Why doesn't he say, (coughs) thank you for living in obedience to the truth? I mean, that would seem to be the natural progression there, but he doesn't thank the Roman Christians. He thanks God that the Roman Christians are living in obedience to the truth. You see, salvation, salvation or the gospel of Jesus Christ includes the work of salvation that gives you new life, saves you, and it also, secondly, includes the work of sanctification that grows you. Thanks be to God for both of those things. That's the idea here. And what about their obedience. It says in verse 17 that you were once obedient. You you were once slaves of sin but have become obedient from the what, church? Obedient from the heart. 
Let's look closely, microscopically at that. Where did their obedience originate? It originated in their heart. What is your heart? Not the organ that pumps the blood, but what is your heart? What does it stand for in life? How do we talk about it? Here's how we talk about it. Here's how we and the Bible understand it. It is the seed of your desires. Your heart is that center of your longings and your aspirations and your dreams. It's what you really want in life. That's Those things rest in and flow out of your heart. Your heart influences what you think and motivates how you act. One of the writers of the Old Testament says it like this, your heart is the wellspring of life. It's that source and spring from which the stuff of your life flows. And Paul says here, God, thank you that the Roman Christians are obedient from the heart. That's where it originated from. But what else does he say about their obedience? What is it that made their obedience possible? And that really brings us to a great truth here related to the heart. You see, there can be obedience that is not obedience from the heart, right? Let me give you a couple of options that are true every day. Individuals can obey on the basis of religious pride. Religious pride says this, I do, therefore I am. It is my activity, it's the external out here that's important and really determines who I am. This would be the moralist, this would be the legalist. This would be the Jew or the Pharisee of Paul's day. They were rigidly, diligently obedient to God's law. But it was often not an obedience from the heart, but an obedience of religious pride. There's another motive for obedience, and that is fear. And the obedience that issues from fear says, I must or else I will not be. Or I must or this will happen. It is an obedience that is exclusively focused on the negative. But Paul said that the Roman Christians' obedience was not like either of those. That their obedience was obedience from the heart. A heart that used to be enslaved to sin. That's who you were. Enslaved to sin. So here is the question then that I think that at least in my mind needs answered. How can a heart enslaved to sin, born under the bondage, the hopeless bondage of escaping that slavery with a taskmaster that demands and receives obedience, and the, the taskmaster is sin itself. And what does sin demand? It demands more sin. A heart that is in that condition cannot please God, Scripture says. It is absolutely impossible. 
And a heart under that condition is a heart in rebellion, some open and aggressive. But even if it's not open and aggressive, the human heart unsaved is the heart that is after its own way instead of God's way. So how can that kind of a heart become a heart that is for obedience? And the answer, church, is it can't. It cannot. It cannot be repaired. It cannot be the dents punched out and some primer and painting put on and a little bondo and a clear coat and polished up. That's not the kind of heart Paul is talking about. That can't happen. So what does need to happen? Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26. God says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. It's not a remade, kind of reworked, kind of remodeled heart. It's a brand new heart. That's why they could be this, having once been this. What made their obedience possible is that they got a brand new heart. And from that heart flowed obedience. So it's talking about here a comprehensive difference. And Two weeks ago, the last time that we were in Romans chapter 6, verses 15 and 16, I talked to you about how this change of slavery that you see takes place here from sin with the master of sin to the master of obedience, that that is a radical, wholesale, across-the-board change. When you change slave masters, everything changes. And the reason that's possible is because you get a brand new heart. Okay, so where did their obedience originate in the heart? What made it possible? What made their obedience possible? So they got a new heart. Here's the third question about their obedience because this is really all talking about their obedience here. So we're Again, looking at the picture Paul is painting of the Christian life and we are seeing it piece by piece around the discussion of obedience and what Paul says about obedience. So the third question then, or the third idea related to their obedience is what did they obey? What does it say here that they obeyed? It says in verse 17 that they became obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching. That's the next little piece we need to look close at. To the standard of teaching. And all the truth here is incredible. Incredible. In fact, in the next two statements, the deep, pure, beautiful truth of this verse really comes out. This phrase the standard of teaching. This phrase is not talking about, I'll try to be quick with this part of it, but I think it's important. It's not talking about just some theological structure, a philosophy about truth. You can talk a lot about the philosophy of truth or the concepts of truth and really keep them separated from anything that really hits ground zero. But the standard of teaching, the concept 
from which that originates is about a real set of historical facts, events of history, specifically the stories of one man's life who lived at a specific time for approximately 33 years in what we now call Palestine that walked specific roads and made specific statements and performed specific acts. It's real history that we're talking about. And the standard of teaching would be absolutely nothing and non-existent without that real historical foundation. And obviously that person is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is His life that set up the standard that Paul is referring to here. But not, let me even take that a little further, not just the words that he said, not even primarily the words that he said, but even deeper than that is the life that he lived because Jesus did not come primarily to say this is the truth about God with his words. Jesus came to say with his hanging on the cross and the nails in his flesh, by that act, this is the truth about God and his love. It was what he did, the life he lived, the death he died, and the victory he won through his resurrection that became the basis for the standard of teaching that Paul is referring to here. But it's not only the historical facts. Because historical facts can be taken, the very same set of historical facts can be taken a number of ways depending upon who's talking about the facts, right? For example, the guard standing there at the foot of the cross could say, here today on this cross, a usurper of Rome was crucified. One who claimed to be a king, the sign above him reading the king of the Jews. The Jewish scribes and Pharisees that called out for his crucifixion and handed him over to the Roman procurator Pilate, they could say standing at the foot of the cross, a blasphemer was crucified here today looking at the same set of facts. The women weeping there that had been close to him could stand there at the foot of the cross and say, a loving, compassionate man was crucified here today. Same set of facts. But the apostles, the writers of Scripture could take that set of facts and they could say, God was crucified here today. You see, they took the life of Jesus and the facts around the life of Jesus and they interpreted those facts into a set of teaching that is fully grounded on and flows out of the life of Jesus Christ that not only tells the facts but interprets what those facts mean. For you and me. That is really the kind of the wellspring, if you will, from that which that set of facts flows. But what now specifically is the word that he used because it even goes deeper into this truth. The word interpreted here in the English Standard Version is the 
standard of teaching. The standard. The NIV uses the word, the form. That word in the Greek is typos. The parent word from which we get type referring to something that is a type of something else. In classical New Testament Greek, the way that that word was used, some of, some of the uses of that word that will help with the understanding, really unpacking the understanding of that idea because it is a, in, it's a very vivid word. The word was used for what a seal does when it's placed into soft wax. It makes a mark of that seal, right? The word was also used of a branding iron heated red and placed against the flesh of an animal that the mark left in the flesh was the mark or the form of that iron. It was used, first of all, in the New Testament by Thomas, who gathered there following the resurrection of Christ with the other disciples, and he had not seen Christ resurrected yet. And his fellow followers said, He's risen, He's alive. We saw him. And Thomas said, I watched him die. And unless I see the mark, there's the word, unless I see the mark made by the nails in his hands, unless I see the mark made by the nails, the spikes in his feet, I will not believe. I've got to see the mark. That's the word. One of the other, probably most clearest symbols for what this word is teaching is the word mold. A mold. Something is put into a mold so that it takes on the shape of that mold. Iron is put into the hot furnace until it becomes molten. It transforms into a liquid state and then that molten iron is poured into a mold so that it fills the mold. It takes on the shape of that mold and then that mold is removed from the heat, cools off and is opened up or broken away and what is left is what? It is the very shape of the mold that you can look at the iron now and see what the mold looked like even if you don't have the mold. That's the word Paul is using here for the standard of teaching referring to what the Roman Christians and by virtue of them every Christian looks like really defining a Christian life. With that now in mind, go to the final phrase of verse 17. It's where it really gets powerful. To the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Now, I know what that sounds like. I know how we immediately hear that. But the way we immediately hear that is not the right way. It sounds like Paul is saying, you were really committed to the standard of teaching. That is not the way that this verse and that phrase is structured. Look at it very closely. It was them or they that were committed to it. It wasn't 
committed to them. It was not, here's the standard of teaching, Tom. I want you to be committed to this. That is not what Paul is writing about. He is talking about it in the other direction. The NIV says the form of, I think it's teaching, but that they were entrusted to. It wasn't entrusted to them. That's not what he says. They were entrusted to it. Now, carry the illustration forward. What the picture is that Paul is painting is that the believer, by the work of the Spirit of God, every believer who is saved, truly saved, the work of the Spirit of God begins in which their life, if you can picture it like this, is melted down by the love of God so that it becomes pliable, shapeable, moldable, and then their life is poured into a mold so that their life is committed into it. They are entrusted into the mold. So that what happens is that their life takes on the shape of the mold. It is what always happens. It's a part of the Christian experience. It is the sanctification that always follows the salvation. What an incredible, incredibly encouraging truth. Paul is revealing here, same truth he's been talking about all through chapter 6, but also powerfully nailed right here in verse 17. Here then comes the next question that begs to be answered. What is the mold? If that picture and story is true, if that's what's happening in your life, if you're a believer, if that's what is happening in the life of everyone who is truly saved, what is the mold like? And we have the answer in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, and a lot of other places, but this is a very clear picture of it right here. For those whom God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Jesus is the mold. Jesus Christ is the standard of teaching. You see how that makes sense now when we were talking about how it's the set of historical facts related to the person of Jesus Christ and it's the understanding and implications from those facts that really set the stage for the standard of teaching that we hold in our hand right here. Jesus is the mold. What does God intend to do with your life as a believer? What is He doing through the work of the Holy Spirit right now? He is melting you down, softening you, shaping you with His love under the leadership and power of His grace, pouring you into the mold that looks like Jesus Christ so that you are taking on the shape of thinking like, talking more and more like, Desiring more and more what he desires. So that when the work is done and you come out of the fire of this life and stand on the, on the brink of heaven and the mold is taken away, what's going to be true of the believer is that they're going to look like Jesus Christ. You're going to be able to look at them and say, I see Jesus right there. That is the truth of Romans chapter 6, verse 17. That is the picture, the descriptive 
vivid picture that Paul paints of the Christian life. It is the consistent message of the Bible. If we were to, if I were to just say, what is the one word here that would prove as you look at your life, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use it like that. As I look at my life, as you look at your life, what is the one word that would prove that you are either truly saved or you're not saved? And the word is obedience. This is all about obedience. He's talking all around the idea of obedience. Where did it originate? What made it possible? Obedient to what? I don't mean perfect obedience. Because if that's the standard, we don't make it. It's true of us spiritually because we have the righteousness of Christ. But in the practical day-to-day words of our mouth, actions, thoughts, desires, motives, It's not perfect. But the question is, the question is, is it progressing? It's not what step you are on, one or a thousand. It's, is it happening? Because it does happen in every single life that is truly saved because you cannot separate salvation from sanctification. One way this could at least impart, not certainly not perfectly, but to looking for in illustration, this is what makes sense to me, at least in part, that we could illustrate this with a, a beating and a breathing. That salvation could be symbolic of the beating of your heart. And sanctification could be symbolic of the breathing of your life. The beating of your heart and your breath. You can't really, though they're different, you cannot separate those. Without a heartbeat, there isn't going to be any breathing. And if you stop breathing, what's going to happen to your heartbeat? Oh, come on. I know you know the answer to that. (laughs) It stops beating. If your heart is not beating, you're not breathing. And if you stop breathing, your heart stops beating. But here is where it becomes powerful. The Christian life is a life, and here's the way, cover to cover, it's described in Scripture. The Christian life is eternal life. It is unending life. Do you Do you understand the connection? That means that every beating Christian heart will always have the breathing of sanctification. Always. Every time. There will never be the beating of salvation without the breathing of sanctification. And that breathing is never going to end because it's eternal. So that the heart will continue its beating. 
So the picture then of a Christian life is all about thanks be to God. It is the work of God. It is the work of God exclusively that saved you, that gave you that new heart and caused it to beat all His work None your work. And then the following and subsequent work of salvation is first in order and first in priority, the work of God. Yes, it involves your work, but it is first in priority and first in order, the work of God, because it is only His work that enables your work. So that we do not then as followers of Christ say, wow, if this is all about the sovereign God and the grace of God does the saving and the grace of God does the sanctifying, man, I'm just kicking back and waiting for heaven. That my choices and my decisions and my will don't have any part to play. That is not what this is saying. In fact, It is teaching us the very opposite of that. What the sovereignty of God, the all-power working of God in your life toward not only salvation but sanctification, what that should do for you is it should fire you up with zeal toward holiness because you know it's not a hopeless deal. It should cause you to run toward it. Because God's behind it, first in priority and first in order. And you are simply responding to what He is doing. And you have the privilege to partner with your will and your actions into that work in your life. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to act according to His good purpose. Thanks be to God. Paul looks at the Roman Christians and he says, thanks be to God that what is happening in your life is that you are obeying from the heart. You have a heart given to you by God that is longing to do what God wants it to do. A heart that is longing to be true to the truth of God. A heart that is longing to be shaped after the pattern of Jesus Christ. And in fact, that is what is happening That obedience in you is continuing and growing. And Christians here at Cornerstone, that is true of you because it's always true of the Christian. So the question then is as you look at your life, what does the life prove? As you look at your life and your heart, if you would say, wow, I mean, just honest between you and God and nobody else, wow, I don't, I don't see any difference in my life related, say, to my opinion of sin than I did before. I mean, I, I, I try to do the religious thing, but I don't have a heart that hates sin and really longs internally to be true to God. If that's not your story, you need to get saved. Because salvation comes with a new heart, and it is a heart bent toward God. It is not a heart empty of sin. That'll happen in glory. But it is a heart longing for the things of God. It's not a heart that says, 
Now you're going to see how this so connects with Romans chapter 6. It's not a heart that says, man, I'm so grateful for God's grace. I'm in, and I can't be kicked out, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live it up in sin. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Romans chapter 6, verse 15. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? See, the whole idea here, the lie that Paul is refuting in Romans 6, 1 to 14, and then he repeats the very same thing in a slightly different way in Romans 6, 15 to 23, is the lie that says, man, grace wins the day. So, hey, let's sin. We're in. Hey, let's sin even more because grace always defeats sin. So if we're in, let's sin higher and grace will raise even higher than that. And Paul says, that's ludicrous. That's ridiculous. You don't understand at all the one that is saying that, what is happening in the Christian life. Because what is happening is that God is shaping and melting and pouring you into a standard of teaching that looks like the Lord Jesus Christ. And if he's doing that, there is no way that you could be saying, hey, let's sin so that grace would increase. If that is taking place in your life, there is no way that you have a heart that is still longing for the things of sin and not longing for the things of God. That doesn't mean that a heart remade, a brand new heart, isn't tempted by sin. It is, but it doesn't love it anymore. Doesn't love it anymore. And when it does sin, it feels that sin. Now that feeling can decrease the more that you sin, you can it becomes easier the second time than it was the first time. But there is still a desire for the things of God. There is a longing for holiness in life. That's what Paul is talking about here. Now what I want to do next week I think at this point, I mean, we're seven days away from that. It's a long ways for me in knowing when I'm going to preach next Sunday. But what I think I want to do next week is I want to then, at least for a portion of the sermon, I want to talk about, based upon this picture that Paul has painted here, I want to talk about what is happening, what God is doing in the life of a believer who is living in repetitive sin. Not that they love it, but that they, as the illustration of the dog, they keep returning to the vomit. What is God doing in that situation? I want to talk to you about the chastening of God in the life of the believer. About how God loves you so much that he is not willing to let you continue to do that and what he will do to change that action. Would you please stand? As you have heard the truth, as you have listened to the picture being painted, what would you say of your life? Are you a believer? Has God done that in you? If not, 
you can throw yourself on the Lord Jesus Christ on his sacrificial death and victorious resurrection this morning. And you can get a brand new heart and be saved. And the process of sanctification, the work of God's grace that will continue, will begin in your life. I want to give you an opportunity as we close in prayer to receive Christ. Put your faith in Him and Him alone and receive Him as your Savior. But then secondly, to the follower of Christ, to the believer. As you have listened to this description, I believe one of the ways that the Spirit of God is working here is He's been showing us, here's where you need to move toward me and away from sin. Here's what you need to flee, and here's what you need to pursue. I believe he's showing that to many of us right now. And I just want, as we pray, I'm asking you to talk to God about that. Make some commitments with your mind and follow them through with your will about what you're going to do about that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are the great actor in the work of salvation. Thank you that my salvation has everything to do with what you have done in your son and that my sanctification is first and foremost what you are doing through your spirit in me us thank you for that thanks be to God I would agree with Paul thanks be to God if you're here this morning and you say I want that I want a, I want a new heart I recognize that I am a slave of sin under God's wrath and I want to be saved you believe that Jesus is sacrifice for your sin and resurrection from the dead as God's very son. Believe in that and want to receive that. You can do that in prayer right now. It's not the words that you say, but the idea is something like this, Father. God, I have sinned against you, and I realize that. I'm convicted by your spirit and the truth, and I know I deserve your wrath, but I believe Jesus has fully paid for my sin on the cross, and here I am humbly bowing before him, believing in who he is and what he's done, and asking for the grace of God that brings salvation to be poured out on me, even me. Lord, I, I pray for those believers in this room that you're saying to us, here is what you need to flee and here's what you need to pursue as the next steps of growth and shaping into Christ-likeness that I'm working on. Lord, as you revealed those things to us, we want to make commitments to act upon them day to day. Not go from here saying, wow, it was neat to meet with God.
God today and his truth, but to go from here showing that we were changed having met with God today and his truth. Thanks be to God in Jesus Christ. Amen. Church, remember to invite you to